Well, good morning, everyone. It is uh, my privilege uh, this morning to, uh, to introduce to you uh, our guests and uh, our speakers uh, today. Uh, we are very uh, glad to have Dr. Christopher Yuan and his mother, Angela, with us uh, today. And uh, I'd like to just introduce him uh, to all of you. This is something that we as a church have been working towards for many months. And so uh, we are just very glad uh, to be able to have this opportunity uh, to hear from uh, Dr. Yuan. But Dr. Yuan graduated from Moody Bible Institute in 2005. He received a master's in uh, biblical exegesis in 2007 and a doctorate of ministry in 2014. Uh, Christopher taught the Bible at uh, Moody Bible Institute for 12 years and uh, his speaking ministry on faith and sexuality has uh, reached five continents. So this is something that has, uh, God has really used. He speaks at conferences, uh, college campuses, and in churches like he is doing uh, with us today. Dr. Leon and Angela Yuan have experienced uh, much heartache from a broken marriage and their prodigal sons. But God has given them uh, the grace to rely upon his power to, to do what only God does, and that is to change the unchangeable and uh, to focus upon their own uh, daily renewal and transformation. Christopher has co-authored with his mother their memoir, Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope, which has sold over 100,000 copies and is now in eight uh, different languages. Dr. Yuan's newest book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story, was named the 2020 Book of the Year for Social Issues by Outreach Magazine. On July 3rd, 2022, Leon went home to be with the Lord. And although there is a deep void, uh, Angela and Christopher continue to serve their Lord and continue to serve the Lord's church as they're doing again today. And we will be able to hear from uh, Dr. Leon this morning through video. So Fellowship Church, would you just please now warmly welcome Dr. Christopher Yuan and his mother, Angela Yuan. America, where money grows on trees and streets are lined with gold. Well, at least that's what I perceived when I first passed through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964. But I quickly realized how wrong I was. The first night, I stayed at my friend's rundown apartment in the slum of Harlem. Even more surprising was the day after, October 31st, when little people wearing custom, wear masks, and ring doorbells and said, trick or treat. I said to myself, what have I got myself into? Angela, my college sweetheart, came a few months later to America, and we married the next year. I also assumed 
Just because we were in love, we would simply live happily ever after. How naive I was. <laughs> we were not Christian then after years of unresolved marriage problem and self-centered living. Our marriage was a disaster. So with encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork for a divorce after 28 years of marriage. So on that same year, May 15, 1993, our son Christopher came home. After his first year in dental school, he made the announcement, I am gay. Since our marriage was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife to face this enormous challenge. Not only did I not comfort her, but I also accused her of making our son gay. Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we should all go our separate ways. Let him be, because there's nothing I can do about it besides. Isn't it more important to be happy? But my wife responds quite differently. You will never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with an automaton to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change, that he was born gay. So he said, if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. Without any hesitation, Christopher picked up his bag and left. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse than receiving news of his death. He could have come with a knife. It would have hurt less. In my mind, Christopher was closest to me, and my last ray of hope had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my rope as my world fell apart around me. I had no more reason to live. So I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with a minister who gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then I bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville, where I planned to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time before ending it all. With only my purse and the pamphlet from the minister, I bought on the train, thinking that death was the only answer to all my problems. Never be much a reader. On the train, I began to read the pamphlet, which explained the plan of salvation, that all of us are sinners, yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart. Then I realized that just as God loves me in spite of my sin, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. After arriving in Louisville, I called a number from the back of the pamphlet and was co connected with that Christian lady who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if I couldn't soak up enough. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. 
In reality, I did. One of my favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. After six weeks, I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling my wife. The lady was very, very happy. She told me that your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved. I was not very pleased. <laughs> I told her this is not a good news. This is my worst nightmare because from now on, she has God on her side. <laughs> but I realized that her transformation was not an, only a Sunday-only change, but affected every aspect of her life. What she had was not religion, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know, God also worked on me. So I started to go to church with her, and a friend of ours invited us to a Bible study called BSF, where we grow deeper into the understanding and love for God and His Word. It was well studying the Word in my church and in BSF, I also surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. God became the glue, kept our marriage together by drawing both of us to himself. This was God's way for preparing us for the difficult years ahead. As our son walked further and further away from God, for my childhood years, I was like most other Chinese American kids. Obey your parents, do well in school, and of course, practice piano. <laughs> I didn't fit in with the other American boys. I looked different, I acted different, and I had different interests. God had given me the gifts of music, of sensitivity. And Satan cannot take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having these attractions was when I came across pornography when I was nine years old. At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. Without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex, and they soon became my master. With pornography fueling my desires, I had my first encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet. I began living openly as a gay man in the gay community. I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship, seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found temporarily, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs, and I need to be clear, not all gay men do drugs. Some do, some don't. I'm just telling my story, not everyone else's story. But I also want to tell you that when you encounter Jesus, he's going to impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs like my classmates. I was broke. If I was going to do drugs, I needed to find a way to support my habit. And I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. 
I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was received my doctorate, the administration of the school expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago, where we were living at that time, to Louisville, where I was going to dental school. And I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My dad was a dentist. He knew the dean very well. All they needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit. And I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate besides. Isn't that what any good Chinese parents would do anyway? To my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mom told the dean, it is not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And she said that they're going to support whatever decision the school made. You see, my mom knew that when it comes to her kids, nothing is more important than her children following Jesus. Even more important than education, even more important than career. But, you know, the sad reality is many people in America may go to church on Sunday and worship God, but then they'll return home and worship idols, the idol of education, the idol of career, the idol of their 401k. And in essence, we sometimes force our kids to do the same. Our parents putting more emphasis upon their kids getting their homework done, getting a better grade, getting into a good school, all good things. Or should Christian parents be putting more emphasis, actually the most emphasis Upon our children following Jesus. Nothing is more important than following Christ. But honestly, I was not happy about my mom's decision. She wasn't on my side, I felt. She was on the school side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago, to the bright lights and big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community, and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator, because in my world, I had become God. Leon and I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs, but we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week, and I filled them with encouraging words scripture and hymns at the bottom of each card I sign love you forever mom but little did I know he never read them and simply tossed them into the trash my wife and I knew the only way if we want to see our son we have to fly from Chicago to Atlanta so we did But on the second day, he kicked us out, not even allowed us to call our friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I offered Christopher my very first Bible. Not surprisingly, he refused, but I left it on his counter anyway and walked out. We found out later he took my Bible, threw into the trash. 
It was more than obvious that he was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my wife and I committed not to focus on our own hopelessness, but on the promises of God. Along with over a hundred prayer warriors from our church, from BSF, we cry out to God for our son Christopher. My wife began to pray a very bold prayer. Lord, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for eight years. Once fasted 39 days for our son Christopher. She would literally spend hours inside her prayer closet, on her knee, reading the Bible, interceding for Christopher, and praying for herself, for me, and for many, many others. She wrote out some of her prayers, and following is one of those prayers. I was staying in the gap for Christopher. I will stand until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I will stay in the gap every day, and there I will fervently pray. And Lord, just one favor, don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I will never give up on that son, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as I intercede. Though it may take years, but I give you my fears and tears as I trust every moment I plead. I prayed those prayers for eight years, and it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers, just not in the way I expected his answer for me was, wait, be still, and know that I am God. Looking back upon those years when I prayed for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet in Christopher, but the change was in me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we will be changed, that we will be transformed, that we will be trophies of God's mercy. Oswald Chambers said, we are not here to prove God answers prayer. We are here to be living monuments of God's grace. As we live out those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of his grace as God drew us to himself each and every day. Often answer to prayer doesn't come quickly. And this definitely was not an exception. But my parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with her prayers. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the father. And a miracle is exactly what God did.
This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I'd started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlanta City Detention Center. So I tried calling my friends. You know those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that get me more into trouble than anything else. Well, what I didn't know was I had a praying mother at home. Watch out. And she knew that as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. Remember, she loves bold prayers. Well, she prayed specifically years ago that somehow, some way, God would cause all of those friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend answered my collect call. So you moms out there, beware of your prayers. They're going to come true. So I was down to the bottom of the list. Home. And I did not want to make that phone call. As I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But my mom's first words were, Son, are you okay? No condemnation. No berating words. Just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2 verse 4. That it's God's kindness. That leads us to repentance. Notice how Paul doesn't say that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath. But it's God's kindness. That leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you can believe it or not. Because I hadn't called home in years. And she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears. She knew she had to do like that good old hymn says. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and next to the phone was a calculator. And she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape, and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is, is in a safe place compared to before. <laughs> and it called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And when I got out of prison, this list of blessings was longer and taller than she is. Both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block. And I passed by this garbage can. 
And if you've never been to jail before, they don't take the trash out every day. So it was a mound of trash. I looked at this and I thought, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My dad had two doctorates. I was just three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. With my head down, I was about to pass by that garbage can. Something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, I picked it up. And it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell. I opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I wasn't thinking this is the word of God. And I certainly wasn't thinking this is the answer. I just thought I've got tons of time on my hands and I better pass it somehow. But as many of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion. And it wasn't a pretty sight. And I thought things were going to get worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. I was handcuffed. My hands were chained around my waist. Feet were shackled together. I shuffled into her office. She sat me down, and I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. She couldn't even give me eye contact. So she wrote something on a piece of paper, slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down, and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read, H. IV positive. A few days before Christmas, I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Ma, I am HIV positive. His sullen and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy, and the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I had lived with this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. A virgin I could not accept, and my worst nightmare was now a reality. Christopher was sentenced to six years in federal The news of his HIV status was like a death sentence. And on the phone, the pains of grief torn in my broken heart like a knife. Endlessly, I stumbled up the steps and dragged my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees, a stinging tears blurred my eyes. This affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my heart. The soft and sweet string of him filled my ears 
and repeat over and over. It is well. It is well with my soul. days after receiving that devastating news I was in my prison cell all by myself just contemplating the mess that I've made of my life I lie there in my cold metal bunk and I look up at the bed below me above me there was graffiti profanity gang symbols but someone had written something else in the corner and it read if you're bored Read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Judah, to tell me that if God could have a plan for Judah in rebellion, in exile, he could even still have a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me. But God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. I wish I could tell you that at that moment I said a sinner's prayer and then everything after that was perfect, like no more problems. Far from the truth. God began convicting me of my idols, my dependencies, which were many. The most obvious was drugs. But within a few months, God delivered me from that addiction. 
God kept bringing to mind other idols. And there was just this one thing that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, my sexuality. I was reading through the Bible, and it was so clear to me that God loved me unconditionally. As I kept reading, I came across some passages, three in the old, three in the new, that seemed to condemn this core part of who I thought I was, my sexuality. So... I went to a chaplain, and I asked him his opinion. Remember, I'm a brand new Christian. I know very little about the Bible, and I thought to myself, I, I got to ask someone who's studied the Bible, who's gone to cemetery, seminary, the chaplain. <laughs> and to my surprise, this chaplain actually told me the Bible does not condemn homosexuality. And he gave me, even gave me a book explaining that view. So with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for same-sex relationships. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. Can I just tell you, from a human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But... God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, his word, and his unmistakable condemnations against same-sex relationships. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant... I turned to the Bible alone, and I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for justification. I thought, well, let's just set aside these six passages, and let's look at the rest of Scripture, see if there's anything in the rest of Scripture that might bless a monogamous same-sex relationship. I went through the whole Bible. I went looking for any single verse. I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked, and I looked, and I looked. And I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point, a crossroads. Either abandon God and his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from my sexuality. By not allowing my desires to control who I am. And live as a follower of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality does not have to be, actually shouldn't be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally. We all know that's true, right? But then as sinners, we just want to add to God's truth. I added, he loves me unconditionally, so therefore he doesn't want me to change. Similarly to your friends who might say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But after reading the Bible, I learned that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Can I say it again? Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my desires, whether sexual or romantic. My identity is not gay. 
It is not ex-gay. It's not even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. You know, before I become a Christian, I was under the impression to become a Christian, I had to become a heterosexual. What does that mean? I need to be sexually attracted to the opposite sex. As a matter of fact, I was under the impression that the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized that even if a man had opposite sex attractions, he still would need to flee temptation and resist sin. So heterosexuality, it might be the right direction. It's just not the right goal. Because think about this. God never commands anyone, be heterosexual for I am heterosexual. But neither did God ever say, be homosexual for I am homosexual. They're both the wrong secular Freudian categories. Instead, God says, be holy for I am holy. Thus, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That is not the goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin struggle is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling, whether I'm tempted, but I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. Because change is not the absence of temptations. God never promises you, oh, come to Jesus and you'll never be tempted again. No, Jesus Christ himself was tempted in every way, but he was without sin. So change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling, not whether I'm tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal his plan for my life. And he called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison of all places. And I realized that no matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my call to ministry would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle. And he shortened my prison sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew that if I was going to continue on in ministry after prison, I better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called them, collected my parents, and I told them I think God's calling me into ministry. And then I asked them to mail me an application to Moody Bible Institute. But there was silence on the line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> They mailed the application into mid prison. I was really excited, got it, tore it open, began filling it out until I got to the last page where they asked me for references. Not from anybody, but these handy people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison. <laughs> but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references. So amazingly, I was accepted. I was released from prison in July of 2001, started the very next month in August. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> I graduated from Moody 2005, went on to my master's in exegesis 2007, received my doctorate of ministry in 2014, and then back in 2011, I had the immense honor of co-authoring a book with my mom called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. 
We wrote this together. She wrote chapter one. I wrote chapter two. She, she wrote on the odd chapters. I wrote the even chapters because we wanted to tell you from her own voice how you can have the same situation told from two totally different perspectives, a parent, a prodigal. And the best part is how God, by his power and his grace, brought us all back together. So this book has a free eight-week discussion guide that several small groups are using and parents are using with their kids from eight years old on up using that study guide. And we found out that several Christian schools are using this as a textbook. Who would have thought that our testimony is now being used as a textbook? But it makes sense. Our kids are being flooded, inundated with resources on sexuality and gender, contrary to God's truth. And unfortunately, we often stand by and say little or nothing. You know, I am fully convinced that the job to teach sex education does not belong in the hands of public schools. Doesn't belong in the hands of media or social media or TikTok. (laughs) That's right. No, (laughs) he got it right. (laughs) Who holds the main responsibility? Parents. But not just parents, because you all need help. (laughs) Grandparents. Any grandparents in this room? I'm adding you to the list because you got too much time on your hands. The real reason is, think when you were younger, when you were teens, you and your peers, how much did you listen to your parents at that, at that age? Maybe right now, grandpa, grandma, you have more of a listening ear to the kids than the parents do. Are we using it? Or are we just wasting it? Are we using it to throw a lifeline to our kids that are drowning in a tsunami of misinformation? I know many times you think, well, I got little ones. You know, when is it too early to talk to my kids? That could have been a good question 10 years ago. Not today. When schools are sometimes mandated in pre-K to talk to your kids and, and they slip it in. These, these picture books and, you know, about teddy bears that are transgender and, and all these different things. Slip it in. They don't have to tell you parents. I used to think, oh, yeah, when is it too early? Not the right question in 2023. The right question is, when is it too late? Because if you are not the first people to talk to your kids about sexuality and sex and gender, we are late. So, amen. So we need to be more proactive in, in talking to our kids. I mean, you know, when is it a good time? You know, maybe... Again, five years ago, I thought six to eight is a good age to start talking about it in age-appropriate ways. Because when you start that young, you know, it won't be uncomfortable when they're teenagers. But I used to say that six to eight. I think now it's pretty much, it's almost three to five we need to start. And I gave this challenge in rural Oklahoma. And when we finished, this grandmother made a beeline toward a book table. And she said, I need ten books. 
And I was like, wow, you just need one. She's like, no, young man, I need 10. One for myself, nine for my grandchildren. <laughs> she said, I'm going to mail every one of the book. I'm going to read it with them. I'm going to use that study guide. And I'm going to discuss, discuss it with them. She said, I ain't taking no chances. A grandmother taking seriously the God-given responsibility we all have as parents and grandparents to no longer shrug it off and give it to the world because the world will do it, will do it happily. I know fathers, you're like, that's the last thing I want to do is talk to my daughter about it. But if you don't, certainly the world will. Because silence is no longer an option. You might think, I don't know where to start. I don't know, you know, how to talk about it. Because oftentimes our message about sexuality goes like this. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. And that's important to teach our kids. But we can't stop there. Because we cannot build a Christian life simply on God's no. What is God's yes? Well, that's why I wrote my newest book. You could go back to the slide before. Uh, my newest book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, Relationship, Shaped by God's Grand Story. This book was named 2020 Book of the Year for Social Issues by Outreach Magazine. And it helped us to have a more robust, full understanding about biblical sexuality. Not just God's no, but God's yes, which is chastity and singleness or faithfulness in marriage. And that is good news for all. But I wrote this book mainly for adults, young adults, college students. But in the years that I've written it, I realized, man, we need something for teens and preteens. So in the past three years, I've been working on a video series because that's what kids are watching now. A video series. Uh, you could go to the QR code. And uh, actually, probably in about a month, we're going to finish up. It's a 12-lesson video series with 36 videos, about 250 minutes of, videos, uh, of video content. That's actually specifically for the grandparent and the parent to talk about sexuality at home. Many of the resources out there for youth groups, Christian schools, not a bad thing. But the youth pastor does not replace the parent's job. Can I get an amen for that? The teacher does not replace the parent. The world is doing that. We should not. Amen? Of course, youth pastors, they are going to help to disciple you, help to teach your kids. But that should be supplemental and secondary. Not the primary disciplers. Can I get another amen for that? Because I think it's time to take it back from the world. Anyone want to take it back from the world? Let's see those hands. Fathers, grandfathers, it's time we take it back. So this resource is specifically, actually not not for youth groups, but it's specifically for parents and grandparents Watch at home and have these conversations at home with their teens, which then will encourage conversations that go on past the teen years into college and onward. We have to be proactive in, in doing this. And um, so we're really excited. This, this curriculum is going to have some nice, high-quality animation. We have a team of 32 animators, illustrators, sound gen engineers, many of them that actually made videos for the Bible Project. Are you guys familiar with that? The Bible Project. So we've got some... Uh, we're really excited. So scan this QR code and put in your name and your email address, uh, and then you'll get more information about that. 
But God has so abundantly given us back the years that the locusts have taken away. My parents and I, for the past two decades, have traveled around the nation, around the world, talking about God's grace and God's truth on this issue of sexuality. And if that wasn't a big enough blessing, God has a sense of humor because he brought me back to Moody where for 12 years I had taught in the Bible department. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? But God has done far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. Many of you probably haven't heard a testimony like mine before, a guy who used to identify as gay and now no longer does. And that definitely is an aspect of my testimony, but that's not how I would summarize it. This is how I would summarize my testimony. I once was blind, and now I see. I once was lost, and now I'm found. I once did not believe, and now I believe in the Son of God, and his name is Jesus. That's my testimony. Pastor Mark mentioned, and we have this empty chair for my dad. He, in July of last year, just nine months ago, my dear father went home to be with the Lord. It was really, really sudden. He was 82 years old, very, very active, still traveling with me in ministry. I travel around 60, 70 times a year. My mom always travels with me. I'm a single man. I have a policy. I don't travel alone. But my dad would travel with us 40 to 50 times a year on the weekend when we would speak together. And we had just come back from the Bay Area. And, I mean, he travels, like I said, 40, 50 times a year at 82, proclaiming the gospel in ministry more than many men half his age. When I'm 82, I want to be like dad. We just come home June 30th from the Bay Area ministering and my mom and dad were out running errands. They had a few doctor's appointments and my dad fell in the parking lot and hit his head really hard on the pavement. He couldn't stop the internal bleeding and within less than 12 hours he was in a coma. When I got to the emergency room The doctor kind of was just saying how serious it was. And and he was like, there's really no no hope. And I told my doctor, no. Mom and I believe in hope. And we believe in miracles. Anyone believe in miracles in here? So we prayed for that miracle. And in 48 hours, that miracle came when my your father was fully healed before his savior. My mom and I were at his bedside before the shell of his body. They were ready to say his goodbyes. I mean, he was in a coma and doctor there. They had already been saying that to kind of pull off life support. My mom looked at me and said, we're going to tell everyone that Dr. Leon Yuan 
is not dead. He is now more alive than he ever was before. My dad would want every one of you in this room to know Jesus. Do you know coming to church does not save you? Having a godly spouse or parent who brings you to church every single Sunday does not save you. But believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you will have eternal life. So the biggest question for us this morning is, do you have eternal life? Because if not, today's the day. Today's the day. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for giving us this day. This is the day that you have made. Let us rejoice in it. Oh God, I pray that in your faithfulness, Lord, that you would continue to refine us by your grace. Lord, I just pray for those here in this room that maybe do not know for certain whether they have eternal life. Lord, that they would today say yes to you no to themselves that they would know the call that jesus put before that if anyone would come after me jesus says he or she must not an option deny himself take up your cross and denial of of ourselves it's not easy taking up our cross daily lord that is an instrument of death it's not easy and then we follow jesus Lord, I pray that that would be a reality and they would seek someone out this morning, talk to the pastors, elders, and Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, forgive us for chasing after vain things of this world. Lord, help us to live fully for you. Help us, oh God, to love you more than life. For it is in the matchless, powerful, precious name of Jesus that we pray. And the people of God said, Amen.